But I don't think I have to tell you that the, uh, the end of one year and the beginning of another year is, is often a time of spontaneous evaluation and hopeful resolution. So by that, I simply mean that, that this is the time of year when many people pause to consider the past and anticipate the future. So maybe in your mind, you linger in 2016 on the things that you hope happen again. Or maybe you linger in your mind on some things in 2016 that you hope never happen again. Looking forward, maybe there's, there's something that you, you really want to see change in 2017 that didn't happen in 2016. So maybe it's something in your, in your personal life, in a marriage, in your work, in relationships. Well, I would argue that that practice of evaluating the past and considering resolutions for the future is both a challenge and a blessing. Okay, like many things, they're together. There's a challenge, there's a blessing. It's a challenge, it's challenging in the sense that excessive self-examination or introspection can lead to what one counselor calls paralysis by analysis. Okay? By that, I mean that we can become so wrapped up in examining ourselves and thinking about what's going on inside of us that we never actually get around to loving God and loving our neighbor. Okay? Anybody want to confess that you're prone to paralysis by analysis? Yeah, some of us. Okay. Well, yeah, a lot of us. Right. Right. Well, that's the challenge. But, but there's a blessing to self-examination. Because, friends, it's absolutely necessary if we're going to heed the admonition of the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 4, where he says, keep a close watch on yourself. Hear the Lord saying that to you in 2017. Keep a close watch on yourself. It's it's not very often that that New Year's Day is a Sunday, and I want to seize this opportunity to challenge you from the Word of God to be, to watch yourself closely by being a certain kind of person in 2017. If if you're part of this church, if you're a member of our church, I want to challenge you, Kingsway, to be a certain kind of church in 2017. I challenge you, I exhort you to be a man, a woman, and a church that is devoted to the discipline of prayer. Okay? I, I challenge you, 2017, to be a man or a woman, a church that is devoted to the discipline of prayer. Now, why do I say that? Well, I say that because I'm convinced that's the divinely intended effect of Daniel 9, 1 through 19, okay? In these verses, God tells us through Daniel, we're told who God is, who we are, and the claim that makes on our life. Okay, by the way, that's pretty much what every scripture does. It tells us who God is, who we are, right? And then it makes a claim on our life. So, so I'd summarize the claim this way, okay? The righteousness of God, this is the message of Daniel 9, 1 to 19. The righteousness of God compels a persistent plea for mercy. 
okay? So you think about 2017, know that the righteousness of God, friend, it ought to compel in you a persistent plea for mercy. Now, you've probably noticed if you've, if you've come some time to our church that, that on various Sundays, not every week, but various Sundays, we invite a different member of the church to come up here and lead us in prayer, okay? So that, that could be a prayer of praise, that could be a prayer of supplication, it could be a prayer of thanksgiving or, or a prayer of confession. And every one of those categories of prayer, you could argue Daniel touches on in chapter 9. But this prayer, Daniel's prayer in chapter 9, is primarily focused on the category of confession. So look at verse 3. What does he say? Okay, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Or as as he says in verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. And I'd argue that that the words that follow in verses 4 to 19, they give us a biblical pattern for our own prayers of confession. Okay, now notice, please notice this, that I said they give us a pattern, okay? They give us a pattern, not a formula. A pattern, not a formula. Why, Why do I make a big deal of that? Well, because biblical prayer including the prayer we see here, it's not a magic spell or, or an incantation, okay? It's not a secret recipe. It's not, it's not about getting all the words just right so that somehow through your prayer, you force God to do something that otherwise he really doesn't want to do. You know, like, like God is some sort of reluctant genie that your prayer just unlocks. No, okay? To pray according to the Bible simply means to talk with God. Okay, maybe you haven't been in church much or, or you know, you've been a Christian a long time, but you just always feel like, well, I, I don't have a clue how to do that whole prayer thing. That's for all those people who have microphones. No, it's not. <laughs> okay, to pray is simply to talk to God. It's, it's not formulaic. It's personal. It's relational. What what does Daniel say in verse four? I prayed to the Lord my God. But, please hear this, the fact that biblical prayer is personal and relational doesn't mean that you and I should be in the business of just saying to God whatever we feel like saying to God. Okay? Okay? Why do I say that? Well, because Daniel is very careful. He's very careful to pray in keeping with the truth of who God is and who he is. He's very careful to do that. And and while there there are some critical differences between the way that, that God related to the Jewish people, Daniel and his fellow exiles, prior to the coming of Christ and the way that that God relates to us after the coming of Christ, I would argue that the basic pattern for our own prayers of confession is the same, okay? So how do we make a biblical prayer of confession? That's the question I want to answer. What does this persistent plea for mercy look like in action? Okay, well, I think Daniel gives us at least four answers to that question. So number one, 
or step one, if you want to think of it that way, what's a persistent plea for mercy look like in action? Step one, we proclaim God's righteousness. Look, look at verse four. Verse four. O Lord, Daniel says, the great and awesome God. Now, why does Daniel say that? Is it because that God momentarily forgot that he was great and awesome and he needed Daniel to remind him? Well, of course not, okay? Of course not. Daniel starts praying that way because as he's praying, he remembers exactly who God is and why he's worth praying to in the first place. That's important, okay? I mean, I mean, think about how often have you heard a public figure say, after some great tragedy, our thoughts and prayers are with so-and-so today, okay? Well, what does that mean? Well, I think quite often it means nothing more than that we feel really bad for so-and-so today, okay? And, and that's, a, that's a fine sentiment, but friend, biblical prayer isn't about tying some sort of sympathy or well wishes to a balloon and just lifting it off to wherever the balloon wants to go. Biblical prayer is speaking to the God of the universe. That's what it is. He's he's not a God of wood or stone. He's he's not a God that you came up with in your imagination. He's he's the first and the last. He's the living one. He he created all things. He sustains all things. He controls all things and knows all things. He he raises kings up. He he puts kings down. He, He gives life. He takes it away. Every one of you in this room is made in his image, and yet he is infinitely greater than we are. Isaiah 40, to whom then will you compare me, God says, that I should be like him? Lift up your eyes and see who created these, all right? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Do you you realize, friend, that when you open your mouth to speak, to pray to the God of the Bible, who, by the way, is the one true God, you are speaking to a great and awesome God. That's what you're doing. There's no man upstairs. All right? There is an eternal and holy God in heaven who reigns over all things. That's what's true. Verse four, and this God is a God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means, first of all, that Daniel knew his Bible. Why? Because that's literally a direct quote from Deuteronomy chapter 7, which was written centuries before Daniel showed up, okay? But more importantly, what does that mean? When when Daniel says, this is a God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, what, what does that mean? Well, that means that though God is eternal and though God is holy, he delights to draw you and me into relationship with him. Okay, that's what Daniel means by covenant, And he does that because he's a God of steadfast love. 
Steadfast love. Now, now think about this. Why, why does Daniel take pains to proclaim that the Lord doesn't just enter a covenant relationship, he keeps covenant. Okay? He isn't just a God of love. Pl- plenty of non-Christians who never set a foot in church would agree with that, by the way. He's not just a God of love. He's a God of steadfast love. Why, why does Daniel say that? Well, it's because he's proclaiming one of the main things that sets God apart from you and me. Namely, he is always faithful. He's always faithful. Okay, What, what do we do? Well, I'll tell you what we do. We make covenants and we break covenants. I mean, right? I mean, why, why do so many marriages end in, in divorce, including supposedly Christian marriages? You know, we, we love people, but then we stop loving people. I mean, why, why is there so much conflict in our families and, and workplaces and, and dorm rooms? That's, that's what we do, friends. Not so the Lord. Not so the Lord. Every covenant he makes, he keeps. Every person on whom he sets his steadfast love, he loves steadfastly. Hear this. He is not loving today and unloving tomorrow. He's not all in to relationship with you today and then scoping the scene for other prospects tomorrow. Okay, that's, that's not who God is. He's a faithful God. And Daniel summarizes that in verse seven when he says, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. Remember I said the first step in this prayer of confession, to proclaim the righteousness of God. Daniel says, verse seven, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. Meaning, God only does what is right. Okay, that word is not rocket science. When you see God say, I'm a righteous God, what is he saying? I only do what is right. Unlike us. Okay, so, so when it comes to the way that God relates to us, he always rewards the righteous. Okay, those, those who respond to his loving authority by, by doing what is right. And he always punishes the wicked, those who reject his loving authority by doing what is wrong. That, that's what a righteous God does. And it would be unrighteous of him to do the opposite, which is why, note, he's not the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with every human being who has ever lived. Think about that. That's what we like to think, right? I mean, of, of course God loves me. Does, doesn't he love everyone, no matter how you choose to live? Well, no, he doesn't. He doesn't. He keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Okay, the, the fact that, that he keeps covenant and steadfast love towards us requires that we keep covenant and steadfast love toward him. That's the point. It's, it's part of what makes him a righteous God. Okay, Daniel begins by proclaiming God's righteousness, but almost immediately he recognizes that if that's who God is, that is certainly not who I am. 
Okay, he proclaims God's righteousness, but then step two, he confesses his sinfulness. Look at verse five. Verse five, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. Some of you are probably thinking, goodness gracious, what scripture did you pick for New Year's Day? (laughs) I mean, make me feel good, Williams. Well, you know what? That's not my main goal. My main goal is to present this word to you. Okay? So, So what's going on here? Well, the reason, the reason that biblical prayers of confession begin with proclaiming the righteousness of God is that until we grasp the height of God's righteousness, friends, we will never understand the depth of our sinfulness. Okay? So if you're a a non-Christian or maybe you're exploring the Christian faith, I I just want to talk to you for a minute, okay? I'm willing to bet that if we were having coffee, back to Starbucks, that you would admit to me that you haven't always done what's right. Maybe there's some decisions that that you wish you could redo. Or, Or maybe, shall we call, some choice words that you wish you could rewind. But you know, you, you recognize that and yet you think when it comes to God and me, the, the fact that I've done that, I mean, is that, is that really a big deal? I mean, nobody's perfect. Maybe you've heard that before or thought that before. To, to which I would simply ask, friend, please hear this. Since when does the fact that no one's perfect make it okay? Or, or mean that it's not a big deal? I mean, since when did we start thinking that way? If, if nobody's perfect, then it's okay. Or if nobody's perfect, it's not a big deal. Who says that? Friend, the Bible doesn't take a casual view of your sin because the Bible doesn't take a casual view of God. Okay? To sin, to disobey a single one of God's commandments or rules is to reject the authority of God by rejecting the word of God. That's what's going on when we sin. We reject the authority of God by rejecting the word of God. And because God, whether you realize it or acknowledge it or want to, is your creator and your king, then that rejection is intensely personal. It's intensely personal. All sin is an act of rebellion. It's an act of treason. As as Daniel says in verse 7, we have committed treachery against you. Or in verse 10 and 11, we've refused to obey your voice. Not just some random rules. We refuse to obey your voice. 
Confessing our sinfulness, it starts with recognizing, please hear this, that the definition of sin, the definition of what's morally wrong, it's not up for grabs. Okay? God tells us what is wrong. God decides, declares what sin is. Why? Because he's a God who speaks. He's a God who reveals. He doesn't wind up the universe and take a nap. Okay? He's intimately aware of every thought, every word, every deed that you have ever committed, and he's evaluating all of them based on whether or not they line up with his perfect word. It's what he's doing. So friend, don't allow, please don't allow the evil one to convince you that this book that Christians talk about all the time is just a book of rules. There are rules in here. There are commandments in here. But you know what this is? This is the spoken word of God. Spoken word of God to you. Every one of them from his, his mouth. If you get the Bible wrong, then you'll get sin wrong. And if you get sin wrong, then you'll get the gospel wrong. Okay, there's a connection. There's a connection. God, God has set his holy word before us as a precious gift. Verse 10, through the mouth of his servants, the prophets. And, and when we honestly examine ourselves in the light of this word, we're compelled to say with Daniel in verse 8, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame because we have sinned against you. Okay, we're compelled by this word to say that. Now, I, I, I wonder, I wonder if, if you've ever felt ashamed. Just think about that. Have, have you ever experienced an, an acute desire to hide something you've done or, or even who you are from the people around you? Well, shame, if you think about it, it's a uniquely human experience. Okay, so maybe you feel shame because, because you've done something wrong to someone else. Or, or maybe you feel shame because someone else has done something wrong to you. Okay, so, so whether it's a result of your sin or their sin or even both, the point is to get close to sin is to get close to shame. Why is that? Genesis 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Friend, that that sense of shame that we so often feel when we have done something wrong, which is true, by the way, whether or not what you've done has actually hurt someone else 
as far as you know, okay? That sense of shame, that, that is a warning from the Lord. That's a sign that every wrong we've ever committed is ultimately a sin against the Lord himself. That's what it reminds us of. And, and, and whether, whether or not you're a follower of Christ, we experience shame. We struggle with shame. But, but if you're not a follower of Christ, then, then please know this, okay? The shame that you carry with you is real. It's real. You, you can't drink that away. You, you can't work that away. I mean, you can get high and forget it momentarily, but then afterward, it's just going to come right back to haunt you. Why is that? Well, it's because you cannot excise the law of God from your heart, even if you refuse to acknowledge his existence in your mind can't do that. If, so if shame is a constant companion, then, then please do this, okay? Talk to a mature Christian who can help you sort out where is that coming from, okay? Who can help you figure out why am I feeling that way? And if, and if that shame comes from something that you know is wrong and that you're hoping no one else ever discovers, then your next step, friend, is crystal clear, Okay, you need to confess that to the Lord. Daniel doesn't just proclaim God's righteousness. He confesses his sinfulness and and confessing that to the Lord. Okay, that includes confessing it to God's people. Really? (laughs) How about I make a deal with you, Matthew? How about I'll just say, sorry to God in my mind and nobody will ever have to know. Why is that not right? Well, friend, it's simply because it's really easy to say sorry to God in the quiet of your own mind just to placate your own conscience and then immediately go right back to doing what you darn well know is wrong. And we just get in this cycle. I do it. Sorry, God, do it. Sorry, God. What brings, in many cases, a measure of deliverance from that, a change in the cycle? Well, I would argue that James tells us in James chapter five, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Okay, so, so what happens when we don't just say, sorry, God, but we confess our sins to one another? Well, well, I would argue that when we go public with our confession, that forces us to take off the mask, okay? To draw a line in the sand that what we did was really serious. And it makes it a lot harder, certainly in my experience, to go back and rationalize that sin. And then once you've gone public with that, then you have some built-in accountability and people around you that will help you remember when you really would rather forget that you shouldn't go back and do that again. Confess our sins to one another, James says. Experiencing the reality of God's mercy, this is the point, starts with being honest about the reality of our sin. Daniel's not, in his prayer, hiding anything from God. He's brutally honest 
about the reality of sin, the sins that he's committed, the sins that the people of Israel have committed. So he proclaims God's righteousness. He confesses his sinfulness. But then there's a third step that he takes. Okay, notice this is a step that he takes before he gets to crying out for mercy. Okay, step number three, acknowledge God's justice. He proclaims God's righteousness. He confesses his sinfulness. Then he acknowledges God's justice. Look at verse 11. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we've sinned against him. He's confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. What's he talking about? Well, Daniel's simply reminding the Lord himself, all of us who are reading, that that the capture of Jerusalem, the, the destruction of the temple and the exile of the Jewish people out of Jerusalem and into Babylon was not a surprise. Okay, God promised through the mouth of Moses that he was going to do that much. He was going to do exactly that, Leviticus 26, if Israel continued to willfully disobey the word of God. Listen to what Moses said. But if in spite of this, speaking for the Lord, you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury. And I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. And I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheathe the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation and your cities shall be a waste. What, what is Daniel doing here? Well, Daniel's simply saying, he's humbly acknowledging that the exile was an act of divine justice. That's what he's doing. Okay, God promised it would happen and it happened exactly as God promised. Look at verse 14, Daniel 9. The Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us for the Lord our God, notice this word, is righteous in all the works that he has done and we have not obeyed his voice. One of the marks of a genuine prayer of confession is a humble recognition that our sins deserve God's judgment. It's one of the marks that God would be entirely just to punish us for our rebellion and that when the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3 that the wages of sin is is death, he's not talking about some really bad people on death row. He's talking about you and me. Because the the physical and the emotional consequences of of sin that we experience in this life, folks, the the shattered relationships, the the broken trust, the financial hardship, the, the internal guilt and shame, all of that, it's a dim echo. It's a gracious warning sign of the eternal judgment to come if we refuse to repent. And on that day, there will be no successful objection that God's judgment is unjust or unfair. That will not be lodged in the court of heaven. Israel refused to heed God's warnings 
And he demonstrated his righteousness by punishing her for her sin. Okay, so Daniel, Daniel proclaims God is righteous. He confesses we are not. And then he says, Lord, you are entirely justified to punish us on account of our sin. But Daniel's prayer doesn't stop there. Okay? And this would be a bad sermon <laughs> if I stopped here. So I'm not going to stop here because the word of God doesn't stop here. Praise the Lord. Daniel, Daniel proclaims God's righteousness. He confesses his sinfulness. He acknowledges God's justice. But then there's a fourth step. You know what that is? He cries out to God for mercy. He cries out for mercy. Why, why does he do that? Why does he do that? What, what gives him the courage to do that in the face of God's righteousness and Israel's unrighteousness? Well, we'll remember what I said earlier, okay? When Daniel says God is righteous, he's saying that God always does what is right. He, he always acts in keeping with his perfect character. Okay, well, Daniel knows something. Hear this. Daniel knows something about the character of the God he serves. He knows that he isn't just righteous in judgment. He's also righteous in mercy. Okay? Verse 9, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. And so he prays in verse 16, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, oh my, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem. When you respond to your sin by pleading for God to be merciful to you, for God to turn away his anger and wrath from you, know this, friend. You are not asking God to be untrue to his moral character. You're not, you're not groveling for an exception. You're not asking God to bend the rules. God doesn't bend rules. Okay, a biblical cry for mercy is, it's not a cry for God to to wink at sin, to sweep it under the rug, or, or somehow believe your promise that, God, if you just forgive me this once, I promise I'll never do it again. That's, that's not what a biblical cry for mercy does. God, God will not be manipulated. He will not be cajoled. He doesn't grant get-out-of-jail-free cards to first-time offenders. He's righteous. Always. He's righteous in bringing judgment, and he's not one bit less righteous in lavishing mercy. If you hear me say that and you think, how in the world can those two things go together? Well, then wait. (laughs) Because they can't. And both his righteousness and judgment and his righteousness and mercy glorify his great name. Now, how did Daniel know that? Look at verse 15. That God isn't just righteous in judgment. He's righteous in mercy. Verse 15. Because you, O Lord, our God, you brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made a name for yourself. Okay, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, then you need to know this, okay? The story of the exodus of God saving his people by destroying 
their enemies by, by bringing Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea. That, that story, that testimony, that functions as an enduring promise, an enduring signpost, if you would, a, a flashing light that just sends its light over the entire rest of the Bible that God is a God who saves. Okay, that, that's a testimony to the enduring, redeeming power of God. And even before Israel was taken to Babylon, know this, the prophets promised that the God who had delivered his covenant people before was going to deliver them again. Jeremiah 25, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity declares the Lord. Verse 14, for many nations and great kings shall make slaves even of them. And I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. Translation, Babylon is going down. Okay? When did that happen? 539 BC. Okay? Nearly 70 years after Daniel and the first Jewish exiles were taken to Babylon. King Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, he's killed. And and King Darius of the Medes and Persians, he defeats the Babylonians exactly as God promised. But that wasn't all God promised. Jeremiah 29. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise. And bring you back to this place. For I know. Don't take this verse out of context. For I know the plans I have for you. Declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and hope. Then you will call upon me. And come and pray to me. What is Daniel doing? And I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Praise God he said that. So so what does Daniel do? 539 BC. Daniel Daniel 9, verse 2. Look back at verse 2. What's he do? In the books, the number of years, he perceives that according to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem. He perceives that time is almost up, namely 70 years. And then, because he's a good reformed Christian who firmly believes in the sovereignty of God, He sits back, he relaxes, he chills and says, I can't wait to watch God do whatever he's going to do. No, (laughs) no, he doesn't do that. Don't you ever take the sovereignty of God and do that. He prays, okay? If God is sovereign, which the whole book of Daniel has just screamed chapter after chapter, God's sovereign. You know what that does? That gives you courage to pray. 
That gives you hope to pray that that when you call upon the great and awesome God, the God of the universe, you're calling on a God who has already promised to do what you're asking him to do. That's called good news. (laughs) Okay? Oh, Oh, that we would take God at his word. The way Daniel does. He prays. He prays because the redemptive promise of God, hear this, the redemptive promise of God, it's not an excuse for spiritual apathy. It's a summons to spiritual activity. He prays. He prays. I'm going to pray, verse 3. I'm going to turn my face to the Lord God and seek him by prayers and pleas for mercy because he has promised to show his mercy to us by redeeming us from exile in Babylon just like he redeemed Israel out of Egypt. He's promised that. Which means you should ask, friend, if if you don't find yourself regularly pleading for God to be merciful to you, then you should ask yourself, self-examination, you should ask yourself, do I actually believe the word of God? (laughs) Okay? If, If you find that you're not regularly pleading with God to be merciful to you in the face of your struggle with sin, it begs the question, do you actually believe the word of God? Because this God... He's a God who makes promises like Isaiah 30. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. When he says that, he speaks what's true. Okay, He he speaks a promise that you can lean on, a promise that you can count on, a promise you can take back to God in prayer. No less than Daniel and say, Lord, you've said that you are a merciful God. So I'm, I'm begging you, I'm pleading with you, do what you've promised to do. Be merciful to me. I I need you. Deliver me from my sin, not because I deserve it, but so that you might be glorified in my life as a God who saves. Daniel 9, 17. God, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Verse 18, for we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Okay, listen. Please hear this. If Daniel had good reason to hope in the mercy of God, and pray accordingly, asking God to forgive Israel and bring them back from exile, then friend, we've got something far better. You know what it's called? It's called the gospel. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. When when Jesus lived, what happened? What happened? Well, he did as the true Israel what the nation of Israel could never do. He perfectly obeyed the law. He loved God and kept his commandments. He he was the faithful covenant partner that neither they nor we could ever hope to be. And in so doing, he earned a spotless gift of righteousness for all who would trust him as their savior. Okay, that's what happened when Jesus lived, okay? What happened when Jesus died? Oh my All the covenant curses for our sin were poured out on him. All of them. 
So, so what does that mean if you trust him as your savior? Well, that means that for you, friend, no more wrath remains. If, if you choose to follow Jesus as your savior, faithfully obeying him as a genuine expression of faith, then the anger and wrath that Daniel begged for God to turn away from Israel, you can know has been turned away from you for all eternity. You know that. God, God answered Daniel's prayer that same year when the Medo-Persian king issued a temporary decree releasing the Jews from slavery and sending them home to Jerusalem. Friend, through the gospel, Jesus has issued an eternal decree releasing you from the power of sin and Satan and death. That's what he's done. His resurrection guarantees it. Because of Jesus, we know God hears us. Because of Jesus, we know God sees us. Because of Jesus, we know that God can justly forgive us. And because of Jesus, we know that God is in the business of taking men and women who feel like they are a byword to all the people around them and transforming them into trophies of grace. We know that. And so we cry out for mercy. And Jesus, the the covenant-keeping God, who showed steadfast love and faithfulness to Israel in the face of their sin, he's eager to do the same for you. He's eager to do that. Okay, His, his death and resurrection is the ultimate explanation for how God can be both righteous in judgment and righteous in mercy. So what do we do? Hebrews 4. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Proclaim God's righteousness. Confess your sinfulness. Acknowledge God's justice. And then cry out for mercy. Because no one who has ever cried out to God for mercy through Christ has ever been turned away. So wherever you're struggling with sin, wherever you're, you're most aware of your need for God's mercy, as you look at 2017, well, do what Daniel did and turn your face to the Lord in prayer. For if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, Kingsway. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, he is eager to vindicate his saving power in your life. So in 2017... May the righteousness of God compel a persistent plea for mercy. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I am so grateful that in your word you deal with reality. That Lord, when when we look at our life or the world we live in and we think, why is, is it such an oppressive place? 
that your word tells us that it's because the world is full of oppressive people. For you are righteous. Left to ourselves, we are not. Father, I thank you that as we look to the next year that you guide us through your word and how to cry out to you for mercy. Lord, we do that right now. Whatever is broken in our life, whatever we're hiding that we hope nobody ever discovers, Lord, wherever we think, if I was a betting man, I bet that struggle is not going to get any easier. I bet I won't see any victory. I bet nothing will change. Oh God, would you deliver us from that unbelief and take our mustard seed of faith and use it to put a new cry for mercy in our hearts. Church, let's just do that right now in your own heart, in your own mind. Let's just take a couple minutes to specifically, persistently cry out to God for mercy in different areas of our life.